Hi, everyone. Happy Friday, and welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm your host, Trey Walsh, and we are finally back with episode 41 of the Progressive Bitcoiner, the first episode back since uh, December of this past year. And what more fitting guest to have for our first episode back um, besides Dr. Mark Stefani, former host of the podcast. So we talked about his book, Sovereign Health. We talked about Bitcoin. We talked about being a sovereign individual and helping others. It was a really, really great conversation. I really enjoyed this one um, with Mark, and I hope you do too. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And before we get into the episode, I also do want to announce um, an exciting partnership I have uh, with SAS Mining. So I am a customer of SAS Mining, and they are a Bitcoin mining company, and they host your Bitcoin miner. They manage the whole process of hosting your Bitcoin miner, but you own the miner and you receive the Bitcoin rewards that your miner is mining. I'm super excited, super proud of this team and what they've built. I've been a customer since the beginning with them um, back in in December when they rolled things out. And they are mining Bitcoin with 100% renewable energy, which is really, really exciting. So really fits in with the ethos of uh, what we're all about here at the Progressive Bitcoiner, which is all about Bitcoin and all about progressive values uh, like the environment. And they really care about both of those things a lot. So if you are interested at all in learning more about SAS mining, you can absolutely reach out to me. And I'm going to put the affiliate link in the show notes as well um, that you'll be able to go to. And you're going to get $50 off a miner with TPB uh, that you'll find in the show notes for this episode. So again, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. Reach out to me on Twitter. Reach out to the folks at SAS mining as well with any questions. Uh, we're here to help uh, and happy to help. All right. Enjoy the episode and uh, we will see you later. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks for coming on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. How does it feel to sit on the other side of the chair? It feels wonderful. It, it actually does. And I'm yeah. so happy that it's back and I'm proud for you to be uh, filling the, seat, the hot seat now. Well, I'm super excited. Uh, it's been a lot of work, a lot of learning, uh, a lot of asking you for questions and things like that, which I appreciate. Um, but maybe for folks, you know, there's a lot of folks listening. Um, it, you know, if you've been a longtime listener, that's that's amazing. Thank you for for jumping back in. But for some people that might be seeing this in their feeds or on Twitter jumping in, um, I'd love to start with just you know as little or as much detail, kind of what were some of the you know how was this started. Uh, how did you go about starting the podcast? And what was that like for you? There was a, a Twitter uh, chat group, I would say eight, 10 of us in their names that most people would know by now. Uh, Margo Piaz, Troy Cross, uh, Bradley Rutler, Tom Maxwell, um, among Dadu, among others. Um, and um, from there, you know, or the a lot of conversation in there and it kept going on for months and people were talking about what more we could do. So that was obviously articles writing, um, for Bitcoin magazine and, and so forth. But then at some point, I don't know if it was myself or somebody else, somebody else just tossed out the idea of a, of a podcast and everybody thought that was a great idea. Um, and I was naive enough to want to try it. I have, you know, a unique schedule uh, that allows me a little bit more uh, free time to tackle some something like this. And so, yeah, I was after mulling it over with the group, uh, as well as talking to, you know, Brandon Quittum uh, here, a local Minneapolis uh, Bitcoiner that most people know uh, over over a glass of whiskey and, and talking about the idea that, you know, really 
solidified wanting to pursue it. And ultimately it came down to both a, a Bitcoin reason and a personal reason. The Bitcoin reason was that there was a huge uh, paucity of, of content for the individuals whom I believe, and obviously you believe that Bitcoin is most likely uh, going to help, is helping the most. And just felt like the gap between the public perception of that and how we felt was 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 so big and wanted to fill that in. I uh, felt like it was my duty in a way to be able to um, do this for Bitcoin. Um, not, don't ask what uh, Bitcoin do for, can do for you, ask what you can do for Bitcoin. And so, yeah, with the help of Tom Maxwell and Evan Primakov, we were able to uh, get this off the ground with, uh, you know, we had no idea what to expect back in December. And I remember doing my first interview uh, with, uh, with Nicole and just loving it because as you'll experience, you get to talk to people outside of Twitter and really get to know a different side of them. And it brings this human element to everything that we're doing, which is so inspiring, so encouraging. And it's just so hard not to be bullish, uh, doing this. And so, um, yeah, we carried it on for close to, I think 40 episodes through last year and for a variety of reasons, uh, personal and otherwise, both Tom and I had to back away. And for, for those that I haven't mentioned this to, you know, via Twitter or via, you know, other conversations, um, I, I simply reached out to Mark and really initially wanting to offer support, you know, seeing the quality of the episodes, listening myself, being a part of some of these conversations with some of the folks that you mentioned and really thinking it was important for the space, you know, important for the conversations that are happening in Bitcoin, outside of Bitcoin, those kind of topics. Um, and, you know, connecting with you and saying, hey, what's going on with that? And then I don't think, I don't know if I voiced it particularly in this way to, to you, but even jumping on that initial meeting with you where we talked specifically about this, it, kind of one thing led to another. It's like, oh, cool. You know, do you want to host basically? Um, and, you know, initially my thought was I'd love to support. I'd love to, and you know, there's always imposter syndrome. I think I'll always carry that a little bit. I'm, I'm carrying it right now, recording this first episode with you who had recorded 40 um, amazing thought provoking episodes previously. And again, no one is making me feel let, that, right? That's a- Let me interrupt you. And, and I'm sorry for yeah. doing that, but- no, no, no. That was the second reason for wanting to do this was because I knew it would be a personal challenge to be in your seat. And I wanted to see how, if I could do it, if I could push myself to, to, to learn the, the craft of interviewing somebody and work on my uh, conversation skills, communication skills, which is something that I think is something we should all continue to improve on. And so that imposter syndrome, I, I totally understand it and commend you for uh, taking the leap because you will become better and you will become more competent going forward yeah. here for sure. Yeah. And there's definitely going to be, time, there has been times already where I'm like, what have I gotten myself into <laughs> doing this? I mean, it's been overwhelmingly fun and, um, you know, you know, awesome to do. Um, I'll also stop. I mean, people will obviously see this in the, the notes, the show notes and the title of the show, but uh, your title, Dr. Mark Stefani. Um, so can you talk to people a little bit about you know, what your day job is, you know, what is it? You mentioned unique schedule. Uh, you do have a unique schedule and I think it's uh, one of your, uh, you know, a, a very demanding career that you find yourself in. I'm a hospital medicine physician. So that's 
internal medicine residency. And then instead of having a traditional clinic where you would follow your patients into the hospital, if they got sick, uh, over the past 20 odd years, that, that style is, has split. And so clinic internal medicine physicians just stay in the clinic, you know, unless you're a really small town, uh, or you practice solely in the hospital. And so my day-to-day job is the ER physician calls me up and says, Hey, I have a little lady fell and broke her hip. Need you to admit her. I would take care of all the medical problems, consult the orthopedic surgeon, take care of that. You know, anything from that to people with pneumonia, to COVID, to heart attacks, to uh, sepsis, to strokes, you know, we see the whole gamut. And if we need a subspecialist, we bring them in. Otherwise, I'm responsible for them uh, during their hospitalization and then try to transition them, discharge them uh, from the hospital, obviously, in in better shape than then they they came in. And so I've been doing that for 10 years. And it is, yeah, so the unique schedule relates to it being shift work, like much like an ER physician where you go in for a chunk of time and then you're, you're done. You don't necessarily remain on call per se. So it's been a, it's been a rewarding position. It's a great job. I don't see, know if I can, I don't want me to put it this way. I don't want to do it for the next 20 years. So, um, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but, um, uh, that shift work and having those, uh, ch- bigger chunks of time off, not just the weekends, uh, has allowed me, allowed me to do the podcast. And what, you know, I, I think everyone brings, uh, something always brings someone into their career or their passion. And then thus that also kind of translates to, to Bitcoin. So we'll get to that, but what initially, uh, it can be personal, um, professional, some sort of experience, um, could be, I was good in school at this X, Y, and Z, right. I've, uh, have a few friends myself that are in the field, you know, what is it what, that led you to, to that path, uh, to, to practicing medicine? I think for most physicians, there's an underlying interest in the physiology, anatomy of the body. There's a certain wonder that kind of sets in when you first start learning about it. And that was certainly my case in, I think it was a junior in high school, I had a physiology teacher who encouraged me and saw my interest. And um, so it was encouraged in that manner. And then obviously you have to want to uh, work with people in situations that are are, are challenging and uh one of those experiences for me uh, was in high school. I was a just a, a what's called a radiology transporter. I would go get a patient, bring them down to the uh, any radiological test, and I remember showing up to the room and seeing a a patient. He was already outside the room. He was in a wheelchair, and he was probably in his mid thirties. He was crying, and his mom was standing beside him. And I didn't want to say anything dumb to the guy because clearly he was upset and emotional. And so I went and talked to the nurse and I said, is there something that I should know before taking the, this uh, patient down? And see, she said, yes. Uh, he was just told that he has cancer. I think it was a leukemia of some sort. I don't recall. And it, it was at that moment, it like uh, I had lost a childhood friend in, in, in sixth grade to cancer. And it, that was a very traumatic experience for me as a kid. And in that moment, like the floodgates of that experience came, all came roaring back to me. And I remember like stepping into the, the galley, the, the, the food area that's on every floor and just crying and, and telling myself that I was going to help fight cancer in some way, uh, in my career. And so I kind of vowed to pursue medicine, uh, at, at that point. And, and so it was, you know, experiences thereafter that then continued to reinforce, um, that desire 
to want to be in medicine and and help people. Uh, one particular author by the name of Richard Salzer. Richard Salzer, uh, he was a general surgeon uh, at, at Yale, uh, but then left the, his career as a surgeon in his 50s to become an, an author. And it was his books, uh, books whom I, I would recommend uh, anybody to read because they're, they're beautiful. His books and writing about medicine and surgery um, that really inspired me to uh, continue to, to pursue it when, you know, times got tough and your pre-medical training, uh, when you felt down about um, the ability to pursue it or wanting to pursue it, you know, it was always reinforced uh, going back to some of his stories. That's awesome. And, you know, one thing I definitely want to talk about and spend a good portion of this conversation, I think, talking about is, is your book as well. Um, what made you want to write this book? I think people who read it see why you wanted to write it. But for those that haven't yet, uh, first of all, I'd encourage you to go buy it. It's a short book, you know, 140 pages, 130 pages, but really efficiently, you know, I've, I've read books. I think there are a lot of books that are written of this caliber that could be three, 400 pages, but could have been said in the amount that you wrote, um, which was really, really cool. So really encourage and encourage everyone to get it, read it. Um, really profound. But what made you want to want to tackle this and write this book? Thank you for your, your kind words. I appreciate that. I I really enjoyed writing when I was uh, actually in, in college and in medical school. I'd started a literary and arts journal uh, when I was in medical school. Uh, and again, as a bit of an homage to this uh, Richard Salzer, the surgeon that I was referring to. And so this book was a personal uh, homage as well for to him. Um, that a personal so a personal goal for me to be able to write that in much the same way that he um, transitioned his career from medicine surgery to uh, the arts. So that was the personal side of it. But then the professional side was it's been about five plus, more likely seven years at this juncture um, that I've been pretty discouraged with the medical profession because it feels like you're putting band-aids on chronic disease, basically. You're seeing the same pathology over and over in the hospital. You're treating the same conditions as a result of the same chronic diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and so forth. And people, I'll get, them, I'll get you better, but it doesn't change the root cause. And we know that the root cause of many of these chronic conditions are lifestyle factors. What we eat, exercise, um, stress, our environment, medical, the medical component of that, you know, is just about 20% of what determines your health. And then your genetics, you know, are about 15 to 25% of, of what determines your overall health. And so the primary driver, therefore, are your lifestyle factors. And it really began to grate on me that I was not treating the root causes of these problems. And so I could not in good conscience you know, tell my patients that they needed to eat better and, you know, lose weight if I didn't live that lifestyle myself. In addition, I felt like I wanted to be able to provide them a, a resource um, in the impetus to be able to um, get that information. And so it really started from that. So the, the book was very much came out of that uh, professional desire to be able to do more. And I felt like the general populace was under the impression that as a physician, I was going to be able to fix everything that, that because I was prescribing these medications, you were going to get better. And 
it was just kind of a, a, a cure-all. But that's not the case. And so there's this huge gray area within uh, within medicine that I, I don't think the, again, the general population is aware of. And I think that's a big part of, a, a big component of, of to a blame is the medical profession. We've had this uh, air of authority and um, paternalistic approach for for decades, and so there's a clear there's a clear difference between my patients who are like 75 plus and my patients who are in their 40s and 50s. The older generation looks at me and you know whatever you say, doc. You know you just get me better. I trust you, and there's not much more conversation. But the younger demographic has a lot more questions, concerns. They want second and third opinions, and it's not that. Either one is wrong necessarily, but what it's telling me is that there's a greater understanding that this idea that we had all the answers, that we could always make somebody better, that we're going to get you back on your feet without any problems, that you weren't going to have a recurrent heart attack, that your diabetes was going to be better just because you're on these medications is that message is, is getting out there, that it's, things aren't getting better. And so I wanted to be able to provide people with a better understanding of the the way the system, the medical care, is not designed to provide health. You you have it is designed to provide medical care, again, not efficiently or not necessarily all that great, but it's most certainly not designed to promote uh, or prevent uh, promote health or prevent uh, disease in the in the first place. And so my thesis in the book is that you as the individual have the greatest power to uh, take control of your health and prevent seeing me from the first, in the first place uh, in the hospital, which is, you know, the best thing that I could hope for, for you. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there and a lot in the book. And I think one of the things um, that I really like about the way you, you know, wrote about it. And I remember when I was in college, we were in a constitutional law class. And again, I will be candid. I was an undergrad 2010 to 2014. So this was right around Obamacare. Um, I can't remember the exact year, but we, we were simulating some court cases or Supreme Court, you know, for Obamacare against, right, ruling in, in the Supreme Court. And, you know, tying this kind of to those progressive values, I think one thing that you touch on in the book, too, and it really delicate but sincere way is about like healthcare access for all and healthcare in general is a really important topic for those on the left. I think in, in general in, the, in this country, it's always one of those factors that's talked about every election cycle from, from both sides, right? And different approaches to that, um, you know, different levels of, for lack of better words, like socialism within that and things like that. And some people completely oppose, some people for, some people talk about the UK system, Canadian system, this, all of that, right? But I think what you talk about, and I forget the exact language, you can talk about second and third orders, right? But just mentioning, you know, healthcare access, yes, that's that's really important, but also just the 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 system in general, the medical profession, the the hospitals and the way there's in, they're incentivized to, to run certain um, tests and procedures because that makes more money for the hospital and pharmaceutical and, and that whole other conversation. You know, o o Obamacare is is not enough in that way, right? Or, or universal healthcare access if someone is for that. So for those progressives that, you know, like myself, that really think healthcare is a, a human right at this point in 2023, again, my, my personal opinion for, for us in this country, I think you talk about it in a way that typically is too politicized, right? The left has this opinion of healthcare and the right has this opinion of 
healthcare and that's it. Whereas you being a practicing physician, but also someone who is progressive and, and talked about some of those things on this podcast, you know, cover some of the nuance. And again, Bitcoin is one of the most nuanced topics anyone can talk about, but, but healthcare, anything complicated in these big things that we really politicize left, right on, there's so much nuance. And I think you, you talk about that a lot as well, but, but can you, you know, if I missed something there, can you elaborate a little bit more um, on like healthcare access, but what, what is the healthcare that they're getting access to? And maybe some of your criticisms of that or what you've seen. Yeah. So I want to really make the distinction between what I see as medical care and then health is design is sick care, right? It's designed to treat maladies uh, and disease, acute illnesses, trauma, etc. It is not designed to promote health. I believe regardless of socioeconomic status, there's always something that you can do no matter how minor it is to help promote um, better health with the intention of not needing my medical care in the first place. So that has a twofold, well, myriad benefits, but it has a benefit to the individual in the sense that it's you're healthier and you don't need the medical care, then it has a benefit to the medical system in that it offloads some of that um, patient care that wouldn't ordinarily, that would not need to be uh, accessed in terms allowing people who truly need it in more an acute setting uh, or for other conditions that not necessarily the result of uh, uh, lifestyle choices to have that access. And so what you have is a system now that is entirely overloaded by everybody seeking everything both from both a medical perspective, from trauma perspective, and trying to seek out um, fixes for these problems that are otherwise uh, managed by lifestyle changes. And so, again, I want to emphasize that I, I still fully endorse that there needs to be a safety net to a certain degree, because I feel like anybody who says that has not been in healthcare. There are individuals who do not have, you know, whether it's some substance abuse or mental health issues who need support. Um, there, there's just no way around it. There's no amount of personal responsibility, quote unquote, that is going to allow that individual to not need access to uh, medical care. And so I want to emphasize that point that I do believe there needs to be some degree but that does not negate, again, for almost all the other circumstances, that there isn't some component of, of things that you can do. Quit smoking, you know, refrain from alcohol, um, take the uh, walk more rather than taking the, the bus, you know, simple things that aren't rocket science to be able to improve your health, again, with it with a sole intention of not only uh, improving your health, but not needing access to the healthcare system. Uh, in, in the first place. Do you kind of going off of that? Um, I guess it's a bit of a leading question, but one thing that I think I've noticed as well, um, you know, irregardless of, of COVID and different factors, there is the emergence of a lot of health opinions and advice in general media and podcasts, right? Whether it's Huberman lab, um, Joe Rogan's podcast, you know, it, it used to be, I remember growing up watching like Good Morning America and there'd be little tips on like, wear your sunscreen, eat, eat this veggie, you know, it's summertime, you know, little things like that, right? And it's kind of grown and snowballed over the years. So um, do you, where do you see some of the positives in that, I guess? And then obviously 
we can think of some of the downsides of that as well in terms of everyone thinking they're an expert. But clearly people are seeing that there is an issue. And I think some people might not be able to articulate it in the way that you are. Like we're just treating things at a, a final point when they should be addressed previously, right? So people are really yearning to be healthier, I think, to, to, to be better in general. Um, so can you talk about that? Do you listen to any of them yourself? Are, are there any that you're a particular fan of? You mentioned, you know, some, some books and things like that that you're a fan of, but any um, materials and things that you've seen um, in kind of general, whether it's podcasting, books, things like that. Uh, I feel like there, there's been a, a real emergence of that the past, you know, five years or so, but maybe for you, you've, you've seen it for longer. What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I remember early on in my career, with WebMD becoming more popular, you know, it was always kind of a running yeah. joke within the, the hospital or the clinic, you know, like, man, this patient spent a lot of time on Web, WebMD, you know, looking up their symptoms and, and, and so yeah. forth. And, you know, I think they still, is it still a resource you hear about from patients? No, no, no. People just say you just Google yeah. them now and you get whatever top hit yeah, it is. Yeah, and yeah. so, um, you know, people will go to Cleveland Clinic now or Mayo and they all kind of have their own little synopsis of various um, maladies. And so again, in, in the book, I, I emphasize where the medical system has failed people there. It's, it, it is a complex issue, uh, and there are many fingers to point, but I don't think that the, the that physicians and the medical system, um, point the finger back at themselves enough. And again, this comes back to kind of the historical, um, uh, the history of the profession in that it was this air of authority. Um, and, and we, the, the physicians were seen as, you know, the paragons of, of society and, you know, that, that kind of peaked in the sixties when they were, um, you know, as, as thought of as highly as, as Supreme court justices, but that, that, that air of paternalism has, has hung on. Right. And so we've guarded this body of knowledge that only we can bequeath onto our patients for the, the better part of the past century. Right. And so it's, be, it's, it's been a real challenge of how to navigate patients who are now uh, looking up their symptoms and wanting to know more. But I, while it can be more time consuming and a bit, you know, frustrating at times, I encourage that because you should be more, um, curious about your health and the medical treatments that you're, you're, you're getting. And I really, in large part, do think it's a, a good thing. What you want to be able to do is narrow it down and you, and focus it on the resources that are, that are good. And in, in addition, you want to be able to have that one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one relationship with a patient to discuss the information that they found. And is this true? Does this apply to me? What do you think about this? And unfortunately, again, our system is not designed to give you that time to have those conversations. And so people rightfully have gotten frustrated over you know, for years about um, their medical care. And so they seek it elsewhere, right? You can imagine a better experience uh, within the medical field uh, and having more time, have or, having continuity of care, whereby it really kind of negates the need for a lot of these other um, avenues and outlets for, for information. So I, I think people see, are seeking answers from 
other from other sources because they cannot get them from uh, a trusted care provider. And, and do you think that has always been a thing and that information hasn't been readily available and that's largely the internet? Or, or do you, you know, where, where do you think? Is that kind of a general trend of lack of trust of institutions across the country period with, with everything? Or do you think there's also a unique element to, to healthcare in this? All three, all of the above. Um, I, the trust is definitely a big issue. And again, I, I, for me, in my opinion, I think Vietnam was a big tipping point for uh, the medical profession. Uh, when the uh, mistrust in the government then I think worked its way into um, the medical profession. And then we started seeing the rise of chronic diseases in the 80s and 90s. And in turn, uh, you know, we weren't getting people better. And so I think that that mistrust has been building. You couple that with in, with uh, gluttony of information that's at your fingertips. And, um, you know, you couple that with the medical system not being a, uh, a good experience. Like I, I fully endorse the sentiment that I'm in the customer service business and my patients are my customers and I want to give them a five-star experience. You know, it happens to be a very unique service, one with a long history, but I'm here to, to please them and try to give them the best experience, uh, that I have to offer. And so I, I, and we're just not doing that, right. We're, we're, we're optimizing for throughput. We're optimizing for metrics um, that really have no relevance to uh, a patient's experience. And so with all those things combined, of course, they're going to uh, become frustrated and seek alternative um, outlets for, for information and care. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And one other thing too, while you were talking, I was thinking of something you put early on in the book that I don't think I had thought of, but makes sense. You know, uh, doctors, um, the medical practice in general, wasn't always this glorified, dignified, oh, they're, they're doctors, they're top of their class, or, or, you know, they're making this amount, or we should listen to this. You know, you talked about some of the, you know, home visit doctors and some of the things I think you had mentioned kind of middle, late 19th century, you know, somebody's like, oh, I'm going to go study medicine or be a doctor before that as well. You know, a lot of people are like, why are you do that? What are you, what are you doing? That's not the most dignified job you can do in that, um, you know, that, that, that turn once those institutions and Johns Hopkins, you had mentioned others, uh, became real forces of, um, you know, probably similar to when Harvard had transitioned from a, you know, preaching school, uh, to the institution that it, that it has been now, for, you know, for, for a very long time, a little bit sooner than that, but, uh, that was very interesting as well. And I don't know if a lot of people think about that, um, in terms of, the profession the way it is now um and things you're talking about like you mentioned really didn't kickstart in that way arguably until 60s and 70s you kind of mentioned um and then in general these market factors and pharmaceuticals uh, that's a whole nother beast to discuss uh, it's relatively new um a, a lot of this in a lot of way ways we're seeing medicine and you mentioned something earlier in, in the um our, our talk here you know the past 20 years it had been uh, a certain way. Um, right. So there's a lot of things that are very recent that people have think have been around forever. And I think that's a good way for people to think about things too. And probably your own, um, you know, physicians and hospitals is like, we don't have to keep doing things this way. You can say that for any field or any, any movement. 
Um, and I think some things you bring up in the book are important points about that. Now, one thing I'll also ask is, I feel like there are a lot of physicians that feel the same way you do. Um, I, my, my father is a respiratory therapist, very, very different, but in, has been in hospital leadership and has had some of those different relationships and connections and things like that. And even hearing some, you know, similar things from, from him, especially during um, COVID, obviously, in his particular field. But um, I feel like there's a lot of physicians that feel the same way you do. Why haven't things changed? Obviously, I, I think I have a couple of ideas, and you had mentioned some as well, but I feel like so many people would agree with some of the things you're laying out in the book. Um, why have things been been the same? Because we're not in charge. We, you know, our, again, our, our power peaked in the 60s, probably, 60s, 70s. And, you know, the AMA at this juncture is kind of a, a shell. Uh, it's the hospital, our, our employers, hospital systems and insurance companies, that's, that's who's in charge. And so they're going to optimize for their bottom line. And I'm not asking for sympathy at all here. Um, but it's always going to be the physician uh, compensation that gets cut because it's easiest to do. Um, I remember talking to one orthopedic surgeon the other day, uh, and, and he was telling me that one of his, his friends, you know, worked for Medicare, uh, in DC and, you know, he was joking with him. And he's just, he, he said that, you know, back in the day when they first started, uh, reducing physician compensation, um, for, for medical therapy, they thought for sure there's going to be this huge blowback from physicians and there wasn't much to their surprise. And so <laughs> they just kept doing it. And so point being, you know, we've become this, uh, we're, 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 we're numbers, you know, on a spreadsheet. I know that sounds crass. I know it sounds, um, untrue, uh, but that's the way that many of us feel. And I can't tell you the last physician I encountered who was really excited to go to work. You know, it's, there's a reason why suicide rates are going up. Um, since COVID, like the general sentiment in the hospitals is terrible. Everybody's on edge. Uh, so it really sucks. And again, my point in the book is that I think you, you couple that with this, whether it's, it's, it's a conscious understanding or not, that you're not really making a lot of people better. You know, that that's different from maybe a lot of the surgical subspecialties where you're, you're taking out a brain tumor or you're, um, you know, fixing something else, but for more of the, the cerebral specialties whose bulk of pathology that we're managing again is chronic disease based just not making people better. And let me give you another medication. Let me give you another medication. It's just this, again, feels like you're a cog in a wheel. Do you think there's anything for folks on the, on the left to understand or anything that politicians on the left, and I say the left specifically because some of the conversations around healthcare, around access, things like that, you know, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions if there are, um, but if that, with any of those arguments, and I, I don't think the arguments, again, right, the, the intention is, is good. Um, we want to talk about politicians' motives, but the intention behind wanting everyone to have access to health care. Uh, a lot of these things that, that progressives care about and those on the left care about. Um, do, you any, do you think there's anything that, that's missing? Do you think there's things that 
politicians on the left could actually do that would make a difference to some of the things you're talking about, just in general, uh, physicians feeling the way they do, patients coming in and, and um, you know, some of these chronic diseases on the rise. Do you think there's there's some practical things that, that can be done and that voters can think about um, for, from the left? I mean, from, from all parties, but you know, we'll talk to the left here because we hear about healthcare the most um, from the left. No, I don't. And I think because the, the power of the, the healthcare of the health insurance industry and the hospital uh, systems are just too great. And again, when we talk about healthcare, medical care, you know, what do we want out of a healthcare system? We want to be obviously be able to provide uh, and take care of our sick, no matter who you are, where you are. And we want to uh, do it in a manner that does not bankrupt you. Right. And so I think those are, should always be the primary focus. And so I, I, I don't, I don't see the, uh, price or the cost of medical care necessarily getting better. And so then you're left with access to medical care and, um, in, in a good, you know, a quality manner from an access standpoint. Um, the, the, the access, I think the access and quality are kind of inversely related. I can walk into any ER, right. And get treated. Um, but the quality may not be great. Um, conversely, you know, if I, if I'm in a big city and I've got access to a lot of facilities, um, and I got decent insurance, you know, I can, I can, uh, benefit from both those things, access and, and quality. But again, I just fall back to this, this position that can we, but if, if we had just prioritized for not needing medical care in the first place, if we just prioritized with the knowledge that so much of what we are dealing with as a result of lifestyle changes, how do we structure a society that optimizes for health and not the need for medical care? That's to me is the missing piece because when you look at expenses, it's all related to chronic disease. It's related to end of life care and that end of life care, you know, the things that people are dying from at that time, again, it all comes back to heart disease, diabetes and, and so forth. And so my, my whole position is it's incumbent upon us as individuals to try and avoid the need for the uh, healthcare in the first place. And maybe this is a good segue into Bitcoin, but I don't see the system changing from within. You have these, these, uh, systems in place that don't change from the inside. There's just not the incentives to, to do so. And that's what really frustrates me with a lot of, um, Democrats and, and center left individuals is that we just keep hoping that if we get the right person in, it's going to change. If we get another Obama, it's going to be okay. And like, I look at the histor historical uh, precedents for that. And it's like, what evidence do I have to say that that is going to be a likely outcome? And I just don't see it. I'm not convinced that if we get, get the right politician in that good policies are going to happen regardless of the individual and their benevolence. And so it, it reinforces this need to do it ourselves and to really refocus, double down 
on at least the how I um, grew up in, in, in that's meaning kind of more of grassroots effort of taking care of, e of each other rather than solely focusing on, uh, you know, very much top down um, interventions. And so I think we need to get back, to, uh, speaking for like center left folks, back to our roots and trying to take care of, of each other from uh, a health and safety standpoint in those grassroots efforts. Again, I say these things knowing that people are screaming into their, their speakers saying, we need, we still need help with, um, you know, um, other needy populations and, and underserved. And, and I get that. What I'm saying does not negate the need for some of those uh, exceptions. But my whole point is the emphasis on trying to build systems outside of a system that is not designed to get the results that uh, we deserve. Yeah, that's a perfect segue to Bitcoin. Um, and again, you know, kind of having this be the first episode back, um, one of the things that makes what I hope um, this this podcast interesting in episodes is that, you know, uh, Bitcoin is this thing, this code, but also for those that consider themselves, ourselves Bitcoiners, it, it really is the ethos of the sovereign individual helping each other and starting from within uh, to realize that the systems are broken or not work. And a lot of them or all of them need to be tossed aside. And that starting principle, I think, is apolitical, right? You can approach it from a conservative values, from progressive values, from religious values, from, you know, atheist humanitarian values. There's all sorts of different value sets. But I think the notion that progressive left is large centralized structures and right is not, is also a bit outdated. And there are many on the left and many progressives who might not think too far into it and kind of be naturally captivated by some of those messages around centralized structure, around we put in a trillion dollars into healthcare and it's going to fix all of the problems, right? But many also, it's, it's value-centric. It's about human-centric, about caring about these issues rather than what structure, right? And I think at the end of the day, the average American, the average global citizen just wants to see people living happy, healthy lives and having enough food on the table to eat, taking care of themselves. There isn't this um, structural thing. And so one thing I'll also say that, again, I think you've done a good job in the book is talking about sovereign health, the sovereign individual and the term, the sovereign individual from a lot of people that know it and know the book that is back there on my, on my shelf. Um, a lot of people might associate that term with really pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's just you. No one else is going to help you. You need to get it together. And this really discipline, like chest pounding, like weightlifting approach, like which is not what you're articulating. And a lot of other people are articulating it as well. That's not the central message. Um, can you talk a little bit more about some of the things you talked about with the sovereign individual? And you had kind of mentioned sovereign individuals also taking care of others in the community. And I really liked that articulation. Um, and I'm curious if you have more to add on that. There's this song that I listen to when I work out, when I go for bike rides, and it's a it's a remix of motivational um, speeches and movie clips. And I'm sure many of you may know what I'm talking about because it's been out for years. But so it's got Stallone, it's got Schwarzenegger, and it's got uh, Ali, 
and a few other, again, motivational speakers in and sees these snippets of their, their talks. And one of them is the phrase, if you are not making someone else's life better, you're wasting your time, right? And so I fully believe that it's one of my main you know, values as an individual, because when I look at, you know, a lot of the, the ethos within Bitcoin or, you know, what I'm doing within, within medical care, it's what ultimately, what is the, the goal? Is it, if we're getting, if we're talking about Bitcoin, is it the accumulation of, of Bitcoin? Is it accumulation of wealth that, that, that's your goal? Well, Okay. So then back up and what is the point of that? What is your hope to be able to do with that wealth? And for so much of, I think what I've experienced in, in my life, if you're not asking what you can do to help someone make so, someone else's life better, then everything else is so entirely fleeting. Um, and so I firmly believe that as it relates to my book, that health is one of those things. And if you are healthier, that means that you can take care of others better. If your wealth is preserved, that allows you to take care of others better. Um, and for me, that's, that's really what it's about and what I try to emphasize uh, to others when, when they come to um, my book or, or to, to Bitcoin is that when you, when you think about these, these things that mean so much to you, um, you know, whether that's, you know, for, for example, freedom, like what is, why is freedom a strong value for you? Um, cause clearly there are examples of people who are still happy and able to do things, um, in their life whose freedoms are, are limited. So is it free, freedom in and of itself? That is the main value system in your life. Or is it what freedom allows you to do? And so again, I, I go back to this idea of what does what do these uh, things that you believe you desire allow you to fully uh, accomplish or manifest in your life? And so health is as much a means to an end as wealth is a means to an end, as freedom is a means to an end. And I believe that end um, in large part should be um, helping others. It sounds like that would be kind of leading to my next question, the connector for you between your life calling, if we will, I don't know if I can jump out there and say that, but, but helping out, you know, I, I think everyone might have a, a central, what they feel is a central motivator. And it sounds like yours is, I want to help people. You also talked about in your book, which I resonate with a lot, like you want to take care of yourself so you can take care of your family. Like you know, we want to, like, I want to live a long time for my wife, for my future kids. And, you know, you the same way for, for your family as well. Um, so is there, and do you see a link between your, you know, mission, whether it's that driving cause or whether it's yourself as a physician and, and Bitcoin and what would that be? Is it kind of what you said? Is there more to add there? Yeah, absolutely. Because for, for me, in, in in the simplest way, Bitcoin is, um, in, more specifically, at least from within the U.S. population, a means of um, saving. 
money and the opportunity for uh, a accumulation of wealth like we've never seen. And you see how that's been stripped away for for many over the over the decades, and you don't see that uh, getting better. And so the and then having that savings again is solely what does that mean then? Well, it allows you to lead a more fruitful life. It allows you to um, be healthier. You know, as I say in the book, as it is now and is likely to get worse in the coming years, people with money are going to be the ones who are healthy. We're going to be able to afford health and people who, who can't are going to be able to afford disease. And so I see savings and, 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 and accumulation of money um, as a means for better health. And so it, it just goes hand in hand, basically. And it's as simple as that. You want people to be able, you don't want them to struggle. You don't want them to have to make that decision between taking their medications and um, transportation. You don't want people to have to make the choice between junk food and um, healthier food, right? You want them to be able to make the healthier choices um, and not have to worry about the financial uh, consequences. And so, again, it's as simple as a, uh, you know, a Maslow hierarchy, you know, and, and having shelter, having health and savings to be able to build on from there. How can we expect people to really give a damn about climate change and some of these more existential um, concerns? Climate's not an existential concern. Um, it's a real <laughs> concern present as I stare out uh, into the cloud-filled, uh, or I should say uh, smoke-filled Minneapolis air. Yeah, you all in the Midwest, I've seen a lot about that now. It's terrible. Um, how can we expect people to be able to care about those issues if they can't take care of themselves in the most fundamental manner from a from a health savings um, standpoint? And so the 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 ability for self actualization is a is a dream for many, and I think that's a primary driver for me. Is like there's nothing more. Uh, fulfilling for me to see somebody find their calling, find their, try to go after their dream, uh, to be able to be inspired to, to do that. And you obviously need, you need a foundation to be able to do that. And those, that foundation feels like it's on unsteady ground, um, more so every year. And so you just want people to be able to, um, not struggle basically. And for me, uh, Bitcoin represents that, and it's as, as simple uh, as that, in my opinion. Do you? I, I feel that I've mentioned this a couple other times before, or just talking with people or on Twitter. That I feel like on the left, and, and me from the left before getting into Bitcoin, um, the left has this aversion to talking about money and wealth. Um, do you? First of all, do you do you agree with that? And second of all. How do we, if you do, how do we help people on the left not view wealth or money as this negative thing? Because quite frankly, not talking about it isn't working. Um, and then we have seen politicians on the left uh, amass critical wealth and 
it's just not talked about, but they're some of the biggest quote unquote champions of working class people, but they just don't talk about their personal wealth. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, their personal wealth, but it's largely ignored on the left. The concept of money, the concept of wealth, most of the leading conversations are about from the political realm, um, systems, structure, minimum wage, right? And to be honest with you, minimum wage, I hope to God people can make more than minimum wage in this country these days. You know, I'm in New England, just there's no part of the country where that's remotely doable um, anymore and will continue to be. So, you know, why this fear of money on the left and what do we do about it to, to have them? Because that's one of the, I think, the real gates to Bitcoin as well is like, oh, that's that's wealth. That's rich people. That's billionaires. That's crypto. It's a real aversion to it without getting out to all the other uh, FUD that we deal with. Yeah, I've thought about this uh, quite a bit and I think uh, discussed it on a, a previous podcast. And for me, I'm 43. And so a lot of that came from associating money, wealth, the desire to make money uh, with Republicans. You know, very, very basic, stereotypical uh, sentiment there. But that was a very much a, an 80s, 90s. Um, reality, you know, Donald Trump, New York City, like all of that was very much a part of the Republican ethos, you know, whether true or not, but that's how it was painted. And so we, as Democrats had the moral higher ground. And so I always, you know, it always felt like we were, we were voting on the issues and uh, Republicans were voting for whatever, whatever was good for their pocketbook. Yet the issues that we cared about require money. We just happen to be asking, we just happen to be asking uh, the government to provide it and did not spend enough time reflecting on the fact that we also ask for our local grassroots organizations for donations, for money. We these, these causes that we believe in, that we feel so strongly in, go nowhere without it. And so my question to individuals who still have a hang up on this, and I get it, I, I totally get it. I, I One of the reasons that I got into Bitcoin was because I have a hang up. I had a hang up with, with, with money and my desire to be able to make more so that again, I could provide all these things for my family that that um, I felt I needed to do, but I knew that there was this this element that I was not comfortable with, and so after the 2017 ICO craze, when just you know everybody kind of had to have a reset, I said, "Okay, if I'm going to get back into this, I need to better understand money, what it is historically, financially, and so forth." And so I spent, you know, 2018, 19 reading as much in, as I could and, and podcasts and so forth, trying to better understand, again, what is money um, and before getting back into it. And that helped tremendously. And so, again, you see it as this tool for the causes that you believe in, or you see it as the tool for what it is that you want in your life. and. So I circling back to what I try to emphasize to people who still kind of have this hang up is that what if we could provide people with savings, with the money that they need to get the things that they want 
to fulfill the cause that we believe in, whether that's addressing poverty or um, or any other you know grassroots effort uh, in underserved areas or um, people trying to find uh, abortion access, myriad things, right? Rather than trying to ask the government for that, why can't we, would you not want those individuals to have that money, that savings in the, in the first place and negate the need for um, it being doled out through, we all know is a bureaucratic system, right? You know, and, and it, a dollar becoming 25 cents to the, to the individual. I don't think anybody could, could um, deny that seems like more of a, a win-win for the individual. Right. And so that's, that's what I, I try to tell people is that, Ultimately, it still does come down to money, and that's not a bad thing. We need to try to step back from this idea of uh, money is evil and really see it as a uh, a means to, as a tool to the end result that you want, much like health is. Health is not the finish line. What does health allow you to do? Health allows you to be a better father, a better son, a better physician, podcast host, and, and so forth. It is it is a means, right? And so is Bitcoin. Uh, it provides better savings technology than than a current savings account over you know a four-year time period. And so in that sense, that is a cause that I'm worth that I believe is worth fighting for. Yeah. The the notion of yeah money. I, I, I like talking about Bitcoin or just the way you put it as as a tool, right? And I think we have to be careful of messaging too and be clear about there is, you know, money is not the end. Bitcoin is not the the end. And as you alluded to, if it is your end, I don't think anyone would proudly say my end is to accumulate as much wealth as possible, or much Bitcoin as possible, and just take it to my grave and just be the richest Bitcoin person on the planet, right? Some people in actuality might be living or experiencing that way, but I think people would like to live for, for a higher calling. So seeing it as a tool um, is really, really important. And I think that's something that folks on the left really need to wrestle with and talk about. Yeah. And, I, and to that point and to maybe, yeah, to anybody who's, who's listening, like I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with, not to throw us on a tangent here, but I'm a bit obsessed with, with death because I see it every day. And you know, especially after, after COVID, I see people dying in the dying process nearly every day of, of my job. And it most certainly has, has taken its toll, but it's also been an incredible experience and opportunity for me to, I think, come to conclusions in, in my life that have, would have otherwise not occurred. And I I feel so incredibly strong about again this this desire to to give more to give back to to leave this legacy of of giving because what I see at the end of 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 um people's lives is that all this other stuff falls away and people just want to be heard they want their suffering to be believed and they want to be, to be surrounded by their loved ones. I've not once ever experienced 
where there's there's other some materialistic uh, or other you know experience that they that they remain hung up on, and the these common themes, which again we all know, that's not what I just said is not a surprise to anybody that those would be the things that we desire and that we need the most. But how well are you managing and curating and really putting your time and energy into those things now rather than 20, 30 years down the road, right? Because in conjunction with those people who uh, are on their deathbed, I see the family members who come in who are estranged or still have um, issues unresolved. And inevitably, there's regret. And those are the individuals who are hanging on to their loved one the most, even when other siblings, spouses are ready to let them go. Because there's that unfinished, those unsaid words. And what I just want to emphasize to people again is that when you look at things like Bitcoin or your health, um, to really try to peel back the layers of what these things mean to you as it applies to your desires in life. And this, this, for me, being faced with, with death has really shown the light on the need to tell people that, uh, you want to do better in your life for them, that you want to uh, care for them more in that you want to leave this legacy of, of love uh, for them. And so how are you going to live your life to preserve that? And so sorry for, for being off on a, a tangent. No, there. that was for, great. For, One of my favorite parts of the episode, I think. Yeah. But it, it just, you, you don't, you're not going to learn that lesson until you're in that moment. And I have had this gift of seeing people there so frequently. And I, and I just, you know, again, it's not, it's not a um, surprise to anybody, but if you can put yourself in that, you know, in those moments of what you think might be most important uh, as you get older and um, have that future self thinking about what's going to be most important to me 10, 20, 30 years from now. And am I being that person now that I would want my future self to look back on and be proud of? And so I think that reframes a lot of one's current actions. Um, at least it has for, for me. And I, I would imagine for others that it really helps uh, refocus on, on priorities. Yeah. I agree. And, and it, you know, I think it seems like a central theme of how you try to live your life, what you write about, connecting that to Bitcoin. Um, I, I, I think that's amazing. And I think that's one of the greatest messages we can promote about, about Bitcoin. It's going back to what you said. What is it? What could it allow you to do? What are these, these structures? What are these things that we've continuously buttered up against uh, in society, whether it's health and healthcare in that system with, with um, money, with, um, you know, inflation, wealth inequality, all of these things, it's a system that is broken. 
And uh, one of my favorite, I, I really do like the phrase, fix the money, fix the world, but I like to adapt it to say, we can't fix the world. We can't even start to address some of these things unless we fix the money. We can't first begin that because I think Bitcoin and what it brings about, which is first examining, like you said, people need to first look at what is what is money. What it actually does is dismantles um, the facade that we have to run things the way that we have been in terms of money, finances, political system, war machines, whatever it is, especially that those on the left um, care about and value, dismantling those things. That's the first step, right? So whether you accumulate a lot of Bitcoin, whether you want to use it or not or whatever, it's about the system it's trying to address. And, you know, coming out of the, the wake of the 2008 great financial crisis, that was the whole point. It's like this system is not working for anyone, especially those that are just normal folks trying to live their everyday lives. It's not working. And there are terrible things that are that are happening in this world. And we need to address that. That's what Bitcoin is about for me, at least. Yeah, no, it's definitely working for some people, the same people that I wanted Correct. To, to continue, obviously. Yes, very true. Um, and that's, to your point, that's something that I also try to represent or discuss with people is that in your, in your job, um, you know, or other areas of life, when you look at a problem, you're not, you don't look at it with just one solution. You look for different possibilities in a way, the, the risk and benefits, the pluses and minuses for any given, um, solution to a problem. And that's the same way that you should look at Bitcoin is that traditionally we've looked as progressive center left towards um, the government maybe for uh, resolution to uh, certain problems. It does not necessarily need to be that way for everything that we've traditionally historically uh, sought them for. Could there be other systems that could do it better? And that's all I ask for people to consider. And you know, we obviously believe that Bitcoin could be that better system because that's ultimately what it what it uh, is about, is trying to find incrementally better solutions to the same problems that we faced for, you know, eternity for 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 decades here in the, U in the U.S. And so um, much like you would approach different problems in your career or in life, you don't do it with one, just one solution. And so Bitcoin offers uh, the opportunity to to be that solution. And so I just encourage uh, the exploration of that possibility, you know, rather re than relying on a system that repeatedly um, fails, fails us. And do, do you think that that system is going to continue to fail or do you have evidence that it is going to continue to improve? Again, that does not negate the belief that we need an ongoing democratic system, but it's understanding it's having expectations, right? It's understanding that it's much easier to screw things up uh, than it is to make things better. And I don't have a lot of hope that things are going to get dramatically better for the people that we care about most through the current uh, structures. And therefore, I feel like an alternative system um, has more uh, benefit than trying to hope that um, AOC or the next Obama would, would come along and make things all that much better. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, again, what's great about Bitcoin or any system outside of the one we currently have is it, it doesn't rely on anyone to 
be good and fix something or be this pure individual, right? It, it isn't reliant on people or people groups or trust in that regard to fix it. And I think that's also something we should talk about more of on the left in general. Um, I think you might've tweeted this recently talking about that savior complex, right? And, you know, arguably it is on any side of the political spectrum, any movement, any any cult, any family structure, whatever, the, the charismatic leader or these, these groups of people, these saviors, what's great about a system that I think is destined to not fail because our current systems, whether it's the things you're talking about, the monopolies in healthcare, pharmaceuticals, that, that kind of stuff, um, our current global financial system, uh, government structures to a degree in terms of relationships with Wall Street, um, inflation, U.S. debt ceiling, all of these things are leading to nowhere. And I think everyone knows that. Um, what is this other system that we're going to build? That, that's what we need to think about because people can have the best intentions. AOC could have the best intentions. Any politician, any leader, Jay Powell could have the best intentions, right? Um, if we're not here to judge that. The system is destined to fail and crash at some point. When will it? That, that's We don't know that exact answer, but we're saying let's opt out. There's different definitions of that. Let's figure out something that is going to work because this clearly is not, and I don't know anyone who would disagree with that. So I've always thought that if, you know, Bitcoin had been in, developed by um, some charismatic Silicon Valley leader that the, the left endorsed, you know, this would be a much different conversation that we need that individual to be able to, to look up to, to shine a light to, and believe that we are going to be led um, into the values and, and, and um, changes that we, that we desire. I don't believe that's coming as I've said, but I turn, but I turn it back. I want to turn it back on, on people and say that, that, charismatic leader, that person is you, that what could you do if you didn't have to worry about your finances as much as you do? What could you do if you did not have to worry about your health as much? Um, you know, the, the, the greatest, what is the line, the greatest fear is, is not that we are inadequate. It's our greatest fear is that we are um, powerful beyond belief. And so what I, what I want to emphasize to people is that it's, it's time that we start looking back at ourselves and recognizing that you are that person that you're hoping for. You are that next savior and you can be that person to others. And so just imagine that sentiment spread across 50% of the population, um, you know, of, of democratic voters of, of wanting to be that person to others, you know? And, and so I think about what you could do if you didn't have to worry about money. Think about what you could do if you didn't have to worry about health, right? You could be that person that you want to see in that world. Your fear of, of, of failure would not be overrun by your your desire and your fear to do to do great and so again i i try to turn the tables back on on people and say you were you were that powerful person you were that person that you were hoping to see in in office 
and your health and Bitcoin as a, uh, a savings technology are a means to be able to be that person that you're, you're hoping for. And so that's kind of the message that I, I would want to leave for people. That's a good, that's a good ending message. Is there, is there anything else you wanted to say or anything you felt that we didn't, we didn't get to that, that you wanted to mention, you know, at, um, your, your book and, um, just in general, where, where people can, can find you. And, um, and I know you're on, on Twitter, obviously, but anywhere you want to point people as well. Sure. I'm on Twitter at Mark underscore MN, MN local. Um, no, I, I don't have any final thoughts necessarily on, on, on Bitcoin. Um, listening to prior episodes will, will be helpful and obviously future episodes, uh, because you're going to have some incredible new guests, uh, undoubtedly, and I'm anxious to see how things are going and want to tell you how proud I am of what you're doing. I know it's, it's scary and daunting and you don't know where things are headed, but I have a, a keen sense to be able to tell when an individual is going to do well and succeed. And I certainly see that within you. And so, um, much as the saying goes, just leap and the, the net will appear. Oh, I appreciate that, Mark. And I really appreciate your support. You know, trusting this, I've mentioned this before as well, but there are a lot of people that really enjoyed your episodes and really look up to and respect you. So I really felt, um, you know, took it seriously in a good way, not in a, oh, how am I going to do this? But in a way of like, wanted to fill your your shoes well in this in this role with what you built and, and keep that going. And had a lot of side conversations with people just saying how genuine of a person you are um, and how gracious you are as well. And I want everyone to know that. And for everyone else to know, like Mark and I are in constant communication. Um, we'd love to do this again. We'll have you on the, on the podcast again. Um, and thank you for being our, our first episode back. This was great. Absolutely. Thank you, Trey. It was an honor. Thanks, Mark.